0: and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. We all know that loading up on cakes, biscuits and fizzy drinks isn't great for our health. And we know that high blood sugar can lead to type 2 diabetes and a host of other illnesses. But then fat clogs our arteries, too much protein damages your kidneys and can lead to osteoporosis. But we don't hear about that anywhere near as much. Why? Professor Karen Throsbury's new book, Sugar Rush, Science, Politics and the Demonization of Fatness, looks at just what has led us all to become so obsessed with sugar right now. And she's here to explain. Hi, Karen. Hello. Your research for this book showed that the press and the entertainment media really started getting interested in sugar and writing about it a lot around 2012. What else was going on at that time that made this significant? What we can see, first of all, is around that time, there's no increase
1: in obesity rates. They're actually leveling off at this point. There's no increase in sugar consumption, which is actually falling around this point as well, gently. Instead, I think we need to look at for example, from the 2008 financial crash. And then we get the rise of austerity measures and these are solidified in in the 2012 Welfare Reform Act. And this was a means of entrenching a raft of public spending cuts that targeted the most disadvantaged sections of society. And there's a particular focus here on those who can be framed as taking more than their fair share. So for example, benefits claimants were framed in that way, And this created conditions of precarity and poverty. And we can see the rise of sugar as a public enemy as part of this. So we get the figure of the excessive consumer who's unable to exercise self-control, for example, in relation to sweet food, and therefore is placing demands on public resources such
0: as healthcare. But the figures that you showed there suggest that actually sugar consumption wasn't happening at that time. So was it a convenient scapegoat for the effect of policies which could lead to obesity such as you know food poverty food insecurity and poor nutrition generally yes exactly that so it becomes a way of
1: talking about those things, about overconsumption, and it gives us someone to blame. So you could think about the austerity project as dividing the population between, well, David Cameron talked about the strivers and the skivers. And so those who are consuming sugar to excess become the skivers who are overconsuming and causing damage to others. And sugar specifically is the perfect target and scapegoat because it comes with the rhetorics of household economy, small cuts here, small cuts there, sort of by the teaspoon, the idea that everybody should be doing their part. And if we could curtail consumption through careful economy, then we can get through these difficult times. And those who are seen as not doing their share, taking rather than contributing, then become the justifications for those cuts. So it's like a perfect alignment of the two.
0: Did the government cause or simply encourage this attack on sugar that we were already primed for? Because there's a lot of coverage about health consciousness at that time. We were starting to get more obsessed with our bodies. Social media and so on made us look at what we were consuming. Yes, I wouldn't say the government caused the attack on sugar. I think when we think
1: about the the so-called war on obesity, there are multiple actors, governments, public health organizations, the weight loss industry, the food industry, the self-help industry, and they're all invested in it in different ways. So I wouldn't want to posit a single sort of causative actor. But if we think about the war on obesity, it is fundamentally a failure in its own terms in that it aims to reduce population level rates of obesity and has failed to do so. And therefore, it needs to constantly renew itself and have a new enemy to sort of revive itself. And sugar was the next thing that sort of took over after fat. And then sugar was perfect because it aligns with the political rhetorics of the moment. So the attack on sugar and on obesity and austerity measures and the political project of austerity are kind of mutually sustaining rather than one causing the other.
0: I mean, you mentioned uh, this kind of war on obesity. Politicians also started talking about a war on sugar very directly, didn't they? Did, they started introducing policies like a sugar tax. Is there any evidence that these kind of setups, that kind of rhetoric, and then those kind of policies actually make any difference at all to consumption and, and, and health?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, for me, anytime you get the word sort of war on, before before a food stop, you should always be alarmed because that language of, of conflict and battle often justifies kind of emergency measures that have not been well thought through and sets up an enemy that we should treat as problematic. But I think for something like the sugar tax, it's quite interesting to ask, you know, does it work? Because what I found was it depends what you count as working. And actually for the sugar tax, success takes several forms to the point where it actually can't really fail So one measure is reduction in consumption, which has happened as a result of the sugar tax in many of the places it's been tried. But there hasn't been a parallel documentation of health improvements, even though those health issues were the justification for the tax in the first place. The second measure of success is the amount of money that's raised through the tax. So This is another case where it can't lose. So if it doesn't raise much money, for example, because purchasing has been reduced, then that's seen as a success. But if it raises a lot of money, then it's seen as a success because this can then be put forward to public health projects like school breakfast clubs and things. And so, of course, this avoids the question of why those public health measures aren't funded properly in the first place. And the final measure of success that's used is awareness, which is fantastically vague, but it's seen as a way of the tax drawing people's attention to the problem and then presumably being reflected in behaviours. So when you put all those together, it's actually almost impossible for the sugar tax to fail because it stands as doing something about something that needs to be changed, even if it doesn't actually change what it originally sets out to do.
0: It's very, very clever and slightly sinister. I mean, in some ways... The language, you talked about a war on some food stuff, but it's actually akin also, isn't it, to the war on drugs in the sense that there's a certain moral virtue signaling caught up in all of that. uh, Rather than actually about improving lives, it's about what can be seen to be done. Did that sort of tag into the government's austerity agenda more broadly, that it was quite useful to be talking about kind of moral decisions in that way?
1: Yes, absolutely. And if we're thinking about the the war on obesity as well, that is fundamentally a moral project. It's about a dislike of fat bodies. And that comes through very strongly in the language. And the war on drugs is a very pertinent parallel, actually, because the way that sugar gets talked about in terms of addiction, but also as as a then a personal failure of self-discipline. And it helps with the austerity agenda, this kind of moral talk, because it gives us an enemy, it gives us a group of people who have failed to be good citizens, and therefore can be judged. And in the case of austerity, penalised, if you think about all the provisionality of austerity measures, and conditionality for, for benefits, for example. So what we've got is they've set up an, this excessive over-consumer, over-consumer of sugar, over-consumer of public resources. And then on the other side of it, we get the good citizen who is self disciplined and manages their consumption. So it's a strategy of division that then distracts from the effect of it is to distract from systematic underfunding and backdoor privatization, for example, of healthcare by moving the focus onto individual overconsumption rather than systemic failures.
0: Addiction is an interesting word as well, because that's also about overconsumption and self-control, isn't it? And the individual, uh, that, the kind of language bound up in that. Does sugar addiction actually exist, though, in the same way that you can't obviously be addicted to nicotine or alcohol or heroin, cocaine? Can you be addicted to sugar in the same way? Many would argue that you can. And you often see the rhetoric
1: of it and you, people will talk about it being as addictive as cocaine, for example, and so on. My question would be, what do we mean by addiction? What do we mean by making that claim? How do we understand addiction? Is it just something that you, you find difficult to stop eating, which is the way it's often used? You know, I'm addicted to these biscuits. I can't, you know, I can't stop eating them. Or is are we saying that it's something where people go out and, you know, break the law and can't, uh, thinking about it constantly, in order to access it. And so I think we need to think about addiction here in its very moral sense, the way that it's being used. And in fact, if you look at the anti-sugar, the the self-help books, for example, on how to give up sugar, which all, all use the language of addiction, they all assume that you can give it up. The books are premised on the idea that it's addictive, but that you can stop. And so it's still falling back on this idea that individually you have the responsibility and the capacity to manage your consumption. And actually, some of the big organizations that use that language have said they use it rhetorically. To just kind of hype up the issue to raise awareness and that it's a it's a very kind of woolly term actually that in the social science literature is very contested that's being used quite strategically and rhetorically to kind of amp up the
0: tension i suppose in contrast to this idea of it all being about self-control and the kind of moral responsibility of a to consume less is also the fact that media coverage and the books published around sugar and so on also introduce this idea that we're constantly being tripped up in some way. So, you know, there are passages in the press which talk about sugar being sneaked into foods where it might be missed, it creates a sense of a, an enemy in it as well, isn't it? That there's this kind of hidden enemy.
1: Yes, absolutely. And actually, when you look at the the, the press coverage and the the anti-sugar sort of giving up sugar books, it's not just hidden, but it's also seen as hiding, that it's seen as a, a sort of living thing that has intent, um, that's a sort of sneaky enemy that has to be, you have to be on constant watch for its its trickiness. I think what's interesting for me about this, this rhetoric of hidden, of it being hidden and hiding and sneaked into food, is again, this is part of the work of making it a matter of individual responsibility that even if, you know, people do talk about changing, you know, working with companies and so on and changing what's in the food. But the primary responsibility that comes out of these observations is that you need to learn to read labels. You need to decode the labels. You then need to make better choices. And this is work that falls back onto the individual, that the good consumer reads a label.
0: The interesting thing is that I only recently discovered, I would say in the last five years, that actually we just don't have the full information about sugar and how it behaves. So for example, let's say the sugar is being sneaked into bread uh, in those terms that they use. It doesn't make any sense to talk about it in those terms because bread is a carbohydrate and carbohydrate is just sugar molecules. But we just don't think of carbs in the same way as we think of sugar, like the sugar you add to a cup of tea or sweets or chocolate and so on. Is there any kind of political reason that we don't hold the full facts on what sugar is and what carbohydrate is and how they behave in our bodies? Well, I think there's two aspects to this. The first is, so for example, in in
1: your point, relation to your point about bread, the attack on sugar is quite specifically about sugar. It's about singling it out. There is a group of people who would argue very strongly that that is the case, that carbs are carbs are carbs, and that you should eat a low-carbohydrate, sort of high-fat diet. And there's that as a way of thinking. But the attack on sugar is much more specific about sugar and more specifically about added sugar rather than intrinsic sugar in food, although there's some kind of blurriness around that it's about sugar being so added into into your bread for example and of singling out sugar as a problem and this is part of that work of setting up an attackable target right so to give it to give it focus you look at the the label and you find the sugar and you see you see what's in there i think the second aspect of what of what you were just asking about the full facts on sugar is that you're assuming that the full facts are there to be had and there's actually a lot that we don't know. And I think as well, there's a great deal of uncertainty about both sugar and obesity in terms of how they operate in the body. So I think it's been kind of oversimplified, especially when you consider that we very rarely eat sugar on its own. We eat it with other foods and in other foods. So it's it's always eaten in interaction with other foods, never mind the social kind of implications of of what we eat and when we eat and who we eat with. So I think there's a, there's a kind of risk of thinking that the problem is one of knowledge deficit, that if only people knew how dangerous sugar was, they would stop eating it.
0: Policies play on that as well, don't they? They play on that assumption that people do feel like you know, we can do that. We can find enough information and pass it on and it will make a difference.
1: Yes. And I mean, there is information out there on labels, for example, although they in themselves are problematic. But for me, the information that's there, the kind of nutritional information that we get is one aspect that is seen by many of the anti-sugar sort of advocates as being the answer that if we told people, if people knew how bad it was for them, they wouldn't eat it or they would reduce it. What I'm kind of trying to think about is what else are we not talking about when we're talking about sugar?
0: One really good example of that is we don't talk about all the other pressures on us when we're choosing what we eat. So you raise in the book, very interestingly, why are mothers always blamed that you know you just must cook for your children from scratch and if you do that they'll eat a very healthy diet with low sugar and uh, you know you'll prevent a, the risk of obesity in later life but actually often parents both mothers and fathers but we only ever hear about the mothers of course are working two jobs they may be a single parent they have huge pressures on them to keep up with everything else going on in their lives a huge cost of living crisis that we're in in the middle uh, of at the moment And actually, the time and the capacity isn't there to cook from scratch, spend all those hours researching recipes and so on. It misses the wider perspective, doesn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think there are two aspects to this. I think the first is that women do the vast majority of food work and even when they're yes, not pretty, so, yes. they're responsible for the remembering the delegating the organizing so and women are seen as responsible not only for their own choices but for those of their families including their partners there's a general kind of attention on women in all of these regards as the site of blame as the site of re- of solution if you like and then there's this complete absence of the understanding of of women's lives and the 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 different choices that they're having to make and and balance. And so I mean you mentioned you know there's issues around poverty. What can you afford to buy? Mm. You know Mm. what can you afford for children not to eat? That if you give a child a new food, it takes many, many attempts to get them to develop a taste for it. If you have no money, you can't do that. You will buy them fast food, for example, because you know they'll eat it. And so you can see Uh, women, for example, when they're managing food in conditions of poverty, they're making an investment in health in the present, i.e. their child not being hungry, versus an investment in the future, which is what might what they're eating now, how might that affect them in the future. So, you know, we need to look at why decisions are being made, rather than jumping straight to this, this kind of how can we get women to stop giving their children sugar
0: it's not just, you know, mothers as well. There's people, as you say, in, in all parts of their lives, whether they have young children, older children still living at home or expected to look after their partners. This idea that it's the decision of one person affecting the health of four or five individuals is, is damaging in itself, isn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, it's a huge amount of weight to bear. And the conversation that we should be having for example, I think around, if we want to change the way that the food choices that people are making in a particular way, you have to look at the division of labor in the household and and in terms of more broadly is who's doing the work. And that's not about finding ways for women to do more work or be more efficient in the work that they're doing. So you get a lot of talk of cook batch cooking and then freezing, you know, and that would make it easier. But nobody's talking about actually a fairer division of of household labour and that work.
0: I think there's also an interesting class angle as well, in that giving up sugar has become a kind of middle class project, hasn't it? And to being able to afford to give up added sugar is an expensive business in itself. So all the extra shopping and the extra cooking and so on. Is it partly about who we want to be seen to be. So there are people who are buying into this because they they feel it kind of reflects well on them and it's a, a class signifier.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it's become one way of showing the kind of person that you are, of the good citizen who takes care of themselves, who is attentive, who is self-disciplined and all those things. And, and my concern about the attack on sugar is that those many of those advocating for this attack on sugar, fail to recognize their own privilege in doing so. And so the core message of the majority of anti-sugar books, for example, is
0: eat like I do. Mm. And celebrities are involved in this, aren't they? You you name some. Jamie Oliver is one we all think of when we think about family food and family health. And you don't ever hear that discussion about who's doing the mental load at home in those programs. It's true.
1: No, no. And, you know, I don't doubt that Jamie Oliver is very concerned about food in a, in a, in a very compassionate way. But the fact is that it's positing a set of tastes and prescribing a set of tastes that are sort of relentlessly middle-class and, the assumption is that if only we could provide people say with if people do address inequality they'll say if only people were able to buy this kind of food then they would eat it they would eat like me but we don't even know that because you ha- it doesn't show any respect for people's tastes the tastes that have developed within the families and there's a lot of sociological literature on this about how like family food tastes develop and become really meaningful and what you risk doing there by just positing, privileging these certain ideas of tastefulness, I guess, is to is to disparage other people's ways of living and eating in a way
0: There's a race element there as well, isn't there, in terms of these are very often very targeted at white communities, white British communities, and and not looking at, you know, the great range of family food cultures that we have in in Britain today.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, food cultures that are deemed problematic as ways of eating by these, these regulations are often then targeted in ways that don't mention race, but are clearly racialized there's a couple of really good books that look at this kind of which foods get valued and which don't and one example is about bread if we think about bread where products like a baguette have a certain standing Mm. as as a sort of a a nice sort of middle-class food whereas sort of fluffy white bread from the supermarket doesn't we could think about racialized foods like collard greens like those kinds of foods versus kale Mm,
0: yeah and kale is so much more expensive of course
1: Yes, and then there's cost, which is a whole other sort of dimension of the classed nature of these attempts to pressurise people to give up sugar.
0: Presumably, we we'll, we won't see celebrity campaigners sort of touching on any of this because I presume one imagines it affects the kind of marketability of their products. They they want they entertain as much as they inform, don't they?
1: Yes, exactly. And I think we could think more broadly, actually, about the story that we get about sugar is one of a lowest common denominator enemy. That that sense that, well, we can all agree whatever else is going on, we can all agree that sugar is bad is the message that we get. And therefore, let's focus on giving up sugar. And what that does is it pushes sugar into the foreground to tell that. And it's a great story, you know, of this evil, this terrible food that's been sneaked into all our meals and everything it pushes it into the foreground in a way that stops us seeing, it forecloses the discussion that stops us having those wider debates around poverty, around inequality, which are spectacularly bad for health.
0: If Cameron's austerity government sort of really encouraged this situation that we're we're now in, and sugar still is that kind of common demon, would a future government of a different um, political hue have any responsibility for exploding these myths and and getting that conversation going? Or are you, I suppose, perhaps less optimistic about the potential for for politics to to really solve the problem that that it has created?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, if I could sort of have my way, I would want the, the conversation to change away from how can we stop people eating sugar? How can we stop people being fat? And talk about how can we address poverty? How can we create um, a a situation of social justice, of food justice? So to broaden out that conversation, push it away from this focus on individual success and failure, individual self-discipline, and think about those broader social structures and how you could change those to improve well-being and health on a much more sustainable and, and a wider level.
0: Let's hope for that kind of mature political discussion. Thanks so much for joining me, Karen. Thanks very much for having me. If you want to read more about how sugar has become this unexpected political shorthand, Karen Throsby's book, Sugar Rush, is published by Manchester University Press on the 20th of June. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help us reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends. And if you like what we do at The Bunker, then you can help us keep going by backing us on Patreon to get the show without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Hannah Fern. Thanks for listening.
1: The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Hannah Fern. The producer was Kasia Tomasiewicz and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.